Kids Podcast. We're in this house. We're in your ear. Boop, or in your boop, car. Boop, Probably boop. in your car. Probably in your car. Probably but in your ears. I would love to see the statistics on podcasts and like where they're listened. Um, people listen in the work, at gym. I only listen to podcasts in my car. And sometimes, I like if I'm playing it on my phone in my car and I get home and I have like 20 minutes left. You'll just sit there and listen. No, I'll, I'll take it out of the phone and just listen to it, like, with headphones oh, like walking or around. just walk around yeah. with it, like, playing. That's fair. I would say it's 80-20. 80% podcast, 20% music. Sometimes I just can't focus after work. Oh, I listen, to, I listen to way more music than I do podcasts. Oh, no. Really? You have mostly On, podcasts? Like, nine, yeah, 80% of my drive time is listening. And I drive a long ways. Sheesh! Well, that's Sheesh. probably why, because you're driving forever. Podcasts right. are better for that. Right, my average drive is anywhere 45 to 55, maybe an hour. Doesn't matter which office, so yeah, it's a long ways. Well, hot damn. Well, hot damn. So if you guys haven't yet, go check out our merch. Yeah, our merch dropped. It looks mm. sick. Looks so sick. We said it last time, but for real, get on it. Shit is selling. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah, it's flying off the shelves. <laughs> It is. Is it? Yeah. Sick. It's dope. You're dope. Yep. She's nodding her head no. Yes. No. You're dope. Well, you guys will probably hear the dogs again in the background because, you know, they're busy, but... What are we talking about? We're going to talk about the Andes flight disaster, or basically more commonly known as Flight 571. Aw, shit. Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. I don't know if I said that properly. Uruguayan? 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 Where, hey, where are you going? Uruguayan? Where, you're, Uruguay, I, I Uruguayan? Uruguayan? Fuck. Because this is oh, no, this is we, catacombs. <laughs> catacombs all over again. Well, Shit. the problem is, is I have to say it multiple times. I think you had it right the first time. Uruguayan. Uruguay, I thought it was Uruguayan, but... I'm almost... Like, I know it's Uruguay, so Uruguayan... Let's roll with it, and if we're wrong, we're fucking wrong. We're fucking wrong. So, again, the Andes Flight Disaster, or Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. Air Force? Like Uruguayan Air Force? Or... Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. That's the name of the, the flight, so, yeah. Well, damn. So, nicknamed the Lead Sled for its poor power. Oh, <laughs> off to a great start here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Led Zeppelin all over That's again. The Hindenburg, I mean. This twin turboprop Fairchild FH-227D was only four years old with 792 airframe hours. Oh, that's a young plane. It's a very young plane. It had a destination of Santiago on October 12th, 1972. On October 13th, after a delay, the flight crashed into an Andes mountain after a navigational error from inexperience this is the 72 depiction of life death and bloody survival oh wow crazy so we'll dive right in let's dive this chartered flight was set to depart montevideo uruguay and was bound for santiago chile in total there were 45 persons aboard 19 of these were members of the amateur old christians club rugby team Five were crew members, and the rest were family, supporters, and friends to the team, the rugby team. Okay. The rugby team was set to play the Old Boys Club, an English rugby team out of Santiago, Chile. Why it's English? I don't know, but it was, like, specified English rugby team. 
Don't know. Why not? Why not? Rugby club president Daniel Juan was the one who chartered the plane to cross the Andes to get to the where they needed to go. So it's his fault. <laughs> it could be, well, <laughs> mm. The pilot, Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradis, I hope I said that. If it could be, or it could be Faraday. <laughs> you never probably, know. Probably. Was he was a heavily experienced pilot. At only 39 years old, he was married and he logged had logged over 5,117 hours of flight time in conjunction with his 20-year service to the U- Uruguayan Air Force. What, what does married have to do with any of that? Just part of it. Okay. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> I talk about the families a little. Okay. I don't pick apart your shit. I was just curious if it had anything to do with... Just his history. I could say he had six kids or... Not married. Does he have six kids? He has no kids. Wow. All right. Yeah. He's just married. Fair enough. He has crossed the Andes 29 times total. Co-pilot Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Laguara. <laughs> Laguara. There we go. Was 41 years old. Married with one child. There it is. He had formerly been a fighter jet pilot. He had only a small fraction of experience in comparison to Colonel Julio. So, not nearly as much. So, crossing the Andes is no small feat. So, the Andes, or Andean Mountains, well, the whole entire range, extends along most of the western South American continent. It's the largest continental mountain mountain range in the world at 8,500 kilometers, or 5,350 miles in length. The width is anywhere from 124 miles to 435 miles, with a well wide, with an average altitude between three and four thousand meters, roughly fifteen thousand feet. That Damn. was the average. Most of these peaks are volcanic, but the Andes also houses glaciers, more volcanoes, desert, grassland, lakes, and forest. Can I pause? Yeah. For those of you who don't know, most small aircraft uh, fly anywhere between ten to 20,000 feet. And Boeing's, like, 737s and up are the, like, only planes that fly higher than 30,000 feet mm-hmm. or 25,000 feet. So these mountains, if you're, small, if you're, like, piloting a plane that's relatively small, you're going to be at the peak or below the peak in most cases. Or you don't cross. You, wait, you go down to a mountain <clears throat> pass that's safe. Right. So quote unquote safe you well you're right you hit your top basically your top window with a lot of these planes and pilots don't want to hit that that ceiling essentially whether yeah. that's like twenty thousand thirty thousand they don't want to stress the plane that much no the, so. a- the atmosphere changes and it's not good for the plane and you can stall just by altitude right exactly yeah. so you don't mess around and crossing again crossing the andes is no small feat it's pretty yeah. damn big pretty damn big so the tallest of the peaks along the entire range is, oh geez, <laughs> it's Aconcagua. Yeah. Okay. And stands at 6,962 meters or 22,841 feet. Huge. That is so tall. So tall. So tall. So tall. The range extends north to south from Venezuela through Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina. If you listen to our Flight 980 episode, La Paz Airport is housed in the Andes. I was going to ask you that. At 11,000 <clears> feet, roughly, yep. in elevation. So, yeah. So, it's, it's a dangerous mountain range. Very dangerous. 
On October 12th, the aircraft departed Carrasco International Airport in Uruguay. This is the country's largest airport. The plane was destined to cross the Andes, but a storm front lingering over the mountains forced the plane to land in Mendoza, Argentina for the night. <gasps> Most Mendoza. larger... Have you been there? No, that's where my favorite wine is from. <sighs> Most larger capacity planes have no trouble crossing the 120-mile trek over the Andes, but the FH-227D's maximum operational ceiling is 28,000 feet. Boom. Called it. Or 8,000 kilometers, if you'd like. The highest part of these mountains requires a 25,000 to 26,000 feet of altitude approaching the maximum ceiling. Because the plane was almost fully loaded, the pilots would need precision flying, gas calculations, and summit avoidance to safely navigate. Or, to avoid the situation entirely, most planes would fly a 370-mile U-shaped course, in compared to the 120-mile one we just talked about, yeah. from Mendoza south to Malaru. But I, it's actually, when I looked it up, I think it was Malaru, but it's spelled M-A-L-A-R-G-U-E. That could be wrong. Hmm. Then fly west, crossing the Pass of Planchon, which is very famous pass. Then to Curacao, Radio Beacon in Chile, and then finally north to Santiago, Chile. So the pilots, and not to stress the plane, they opted to do the longer U-shaped route to avoid, again, excess stress. Sure. On October 13th, the weather conditions over the Andes were still poor, but they were expected to clear and change by early afternoon. So the plane departed at 2.18 p.m. from Mendoza with co-pilot Laguara at control. Due to Ferrada's experience, he was basically tra uh, training LaGuardia to fly effectively through the Andes. You know, I would complain about like, oh, well, that's not the time and place. But like, how else are you going to learn it and right. fly through the Andes? No, you know? I mean, you the only way you get experience is through experience. Yeah. You know, so I don't and blame you were hoping that somebody else, someone experienced could guide you. So there's, you know, that's all you can do. That's all you can do. LaGuara radioed Mal Malaru Airport with a I'm going to go with it. It's probably wrong. With a checkpoint position and told them they would be at 8,251 feet and the Planchon Pass by 3.21 p.m. The Planchon Pass then communicated this to the air traffic control in Chile. This mountain range is so wide they have to put traffic control centers in the middle of the mountain to communicate from the mountain to one side to the other of the range. Oh my god. Because I'm assuming the signals get blocked by the, the tall summits. Surely, yeah. So. Yeah. Again, once across the mountains in Chile, the plane was turn was due to turn north and start its initial descent into Putahul Airport, Santiago. <laughs> like, fuck me on these names. I'm Seriously. sorry. This meant no, I mean no disrespect. <laughs> But I'm, I don't speak fluid Spanish, so I know I'm botching them, but just bear with me. Yeah, pick an air crash in, like, America next time. <laughs> I'm going to pick J Japan. Ching <laughs> chingling. Okay, that's super. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I can think of. Oh, I'd have no. to look up the translation and then translate to English and then English enunciation. It's like, oh, oh my God. God. All right, the weather conditions had improved slightly, but there is still significant cloud cover. <laughs> They were flying under instrumental meteorological conditions at roughly 18,000 feet. This means there's no visibility. Right. So in, they're relying on their instruments on their control panel to see what they're doing and where they're going. What year is this? 1970. Oh, I have to go back up. Sorry. 1972. Yeah, I was right. <clears throat> okay, so the technology is kind of there. It's kind of there. Kind of there. Kind of there. 
Due to the cloud cover, they could not visually confirm their location again. To cross the Planchon Pass into Curacao, it takes roughly 11 minutes total. At 321, LaGuara radioed Santiago that they had reached Curacao and they were turning north, but only three minutes later after entering the pass. He requested to start his initial descent into Santiago. Due to not being able to visually confirm their location and the air traffic control not realizing the time discrepancy, they authorized the descent to 11,500 feet. Oh, shit. I see where this is going, and it's not good. Not good. So where did the time discrepancy come from? Um, what do you mean? Well, like, because they, they wanted Shouldn't to Shouldn't Ferrara they... have figured this out? Why would they turn only after going in? So they enter the pass, and from one entrance to the other pass, and then you start turning north, that's an 11-minute clock window. Clocked window. Right. After three minutes of only going to the pass, but they couldn't see it after cloud cover, he started turning north already way too soon why did Ferraris not catch that the most critical part of the flight is going over the andes how did he not catch this that's perplexing to me very perplexing so maybe they're going blind but again they're going south cutting straight east no south i'm sorry excuse me cutting west through the andes and then cutting north it's a u-shaped right right so Hmm. yeah weird i don't know very weird not so not only had laguara turned way too early he made his turn only at 14 degrees instead of 30 degrees so he didn't turn enough he kept going kind of at a diagonal versus a more of a harder turn they're screwing up unfortunately at the at the only place they shouldn't screw up right Upon descent, the aircraft hits severe turbulence, causing it to drop hundreds of feet out of the clouds. Just went boom, boom. that. Have you ever experienced that, by the way? I have experienced, I I don't know how big of a drop, but I have once where it did drop, but, like, shit didn't go flying, the air, the stuff didn't fall out of the, the things. I've had that happen. I have not. I hope it never happens. You can just shoot me now. I was, we were taking off at, Go-go, at I'm the air pilot guy. Yeah. <laughs> shoot it, me. I did not know this was even a thing, but I'm glad I experienced it because now I'm not scared of it. But we were taking off at a Philadelphia and the plane was in like a super high angle and turning at the same time. Sure. And the wind must have just caught the wings the right way. And it just it felt like we were like this, like going and then up, you went boom. and then like fell backwards. Yeah, like, that's what it felt like. We were falling backwards towards Earth. And, like, everyone on the plane was like, oh, shit. Because we were like, oh, <laughs> oh And it was a it was a good fall. Yeah. It felt like you were floating probably and then, 100 feet. Did you, like, feel like you're floating first and then go back? Or was it just a boom? It literally, I I mean, I was disoriented because it's a weird angle. But, like, right. it felt like I was on, like, a roller coaster. And, like, you know when they, like, go up and then you, like, you fall backwards? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you float. There's, like, a period where you're like, whoo. Yeah, there was none of that. I mean, you it just literally like, just oh. felt like I was falling out of the fucking sky. Fuck that. I was so... T- and then, like, it caught up, and then we kept going, and I was just like, oh, my God. I wonder if they did it on purpose. Sometimes they do to avoid flocks of birds and shit like that. Like, they slow I, they slow maybe? their jets enough because you're go- you're taking off at 200-plus miles an hour. We were super high up. If I you drop to 150 miles an hour, that's, a, that's like a... Yeah, it didn't sound intentional because it just kind of happened. Mm. and and they we had a lot random... of turbulence during right. that time too so you do hit pockets of turbulence that's not predicted so yeah no we just went ooh, and i was like ah! and that was it oh yeah it was like maybe five seconds and there the 
the lady was walking down the aisle and she like grabbed onto a person instead of a handrail oh, yeah. in his arm and she's like oh i'm sorry <laughs> that was sorry. it she was a sweet little lady she's like oh i'm so sorry i just i just didn't want to fall on your lap <laughs> <laughs> and he's like is this normal <laughs> and she's like oh you fine you're fine you're fine you're fine, you're fine. <laughs> and i was like all right cool yeah. all right so at this point they dropped hundreds of feet out of the clouds now they can see this is when the passengers started noticing the close proximity of the mountains around them. <laughs> oh, shit. Are we supposed to be right next to this mountain? <laughs> right. Because they think they're going over the mountain range or through a pass, not... Ugh. The pilots saw a black ridge rising dead ahead of them. I know. Shit. I'd shit at, myself. At this point, the plane began to climb until it was nearly vertical. As hard as they could go. Oh zero to 100 God. it could not handle the power that it needed and it started to stall out due to the just yeah. lean back and go up and their altitude i'm sure right at aircraft ground collision well i'm sorry an aircraft ground collision alarm sounded off in and it's just like woo, 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 like shit like oh. right 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 the pilot shifted now to full maximum thrust to gain altitude he's still trying to force this plane to keep going, but it was too late. The Shit. <laughs> right. The pilot was able to bring the nose of the plane over the ridge, but at 3.34 p.m., the lower tail clipped the ridge at 4,200 meters or 13,800 feet. They almost made it, but he just clipped the bottom part of the tail. Oh, no. The bottom part, because tails are like an X pattern, so. It's not good. The plane struck the ground. And then severed the entire right wing, right wing, and ripped it right off. Because it clipped it, and that force from the clip of the wing dropped the nose down to the ground, and then it skidded, and then just ripped the wing off on some debris. Damn. This was such a massive force that it took. It also tore off the vertical stabilizer, which is the top part of the tail. If you think of it as a cross shape, the top part yeah. is the vertical stabilizer. Yeah. Um, and the tail cone. So the three pro the tail there's a cone at the center of them. It's not just a just a V. There's a circle basically where it's all attached to mm -hmm. that comes off the fuselage, which we talked about before. That central tube essentially where passengers are housed. Yeah, yeah. The tail cone was ripped off, and so was a part of the rear fuselage, including two rows of seats in the rear passenger cabin, the galley, and the baggage hold. Three passengers, a navigator, and a steward were lost and ejected with the tail section when it got ripped off. They were sucked out with Goodbye. it. Goodbye. The plane is still in motion, and after a loss of the right wing, 200 meters later, the left wing struck an outcropping at 4,400 meters or 14,400 feet. As the left wing was ripped off, one of the propellers sliced through the fuselage because it's a dual twin prop, right, so there's right, two right. prop things externally. Upon this impact, two more passengers were ejected from the rear. Fuck that. What remained of the plane in the fuselage hit a snowbank and then descended a steep glacier at speeds of 220 miles per hour until stopping at 2,379 feet below the original impact. Down the mountainside. Holy shit! It's like the most intense sleigh ride you've ever had. I mean, we hike mountains like here, and when we elevate 2,000 feet, you're like, holy fuck. Can you imagine sliding down 2,000 feet? That's like Sunday also, River. after experiencing a plane crash. Right. 
So, like, not only are you, like, fucking disoriented from crashing into a goddamn mountain. It gets fucking crazier. So, (laughs) upon hitting the snowbank, every single seat was torn from the bases and thrown towards the front of the fuselage. Every single seat ripped from the bolts. Shit. This instantly killed Pilot Ferratus, and it crushed the remainder of the cockpit. Crumpled it. But... Well, I'll I'll wait. The plane came to rest at 11,710 feet, or basically 3,570 meters, in Malaru, Mendoza. And it was later named where they rested the Glacier of Tears. No shit. This glacier resides between Mount Sosniato and Vulcan... Oh, no. There's a lot of eyes. (laughs) Ting... (laughs) I'm gonna spell it. T-I-N-G-U-I-I-R-I-R-I-C-A. Have fun with that yeah, one. Yeah, I got, no, I got nothing. Basically, <laughs> this is the most extremely remote mountain border between Chile and Argentina, smack in the center. It was 50 miles east of its planned route. 50 f- miles? Holy. 50 miles east. The flight was deemed controlled... F- this flight was deemed a controlled flight into terrain that was due to pilot error, the reason why they crashed. Right. Lieutenant Ramon Sal Martinez or Vito Ramirez... Gaston Costamal, Alejo Hune, Guido Magri, Daniel Shaw, and Carlos Valletta were presumed missing when the tail was broken and then these passengers were ejected during the crash. So, upon hitting the snowbank when all the seats were ripped from the anchors, Dr. Francisco Nicola Nicola, and his wife Esther were killed immediately on impact. Eugenia Parado and Fernando Vasquez were also killed. Damn. I want to put the names out just so people like know. A lot of these don't have meanings, but I feel like I owe it to them telling a story that people should know their names. Yeah. So I'm just using real names. Yep. That's, that's, that's fair. So again, Ferradas died instantly when the nose gear compressed the control panel and it forced his head out the window during impact from the nose hitting. It crushed him, shoved his head out, and he was decapitated. Uh, yeah. What a way to die. Like, you get your chest crushed. I don't know what initially, what, because it was, well, it, it, this is a long time. But I don't know if it, he died from the decapitation or the crush injury itself. I have no idea. I don't even think they know. Damn. So, LaGuara, he was critically injured and actually survived being in the cockpit. And he was trapped in there, essentially. Holy shit. He was crushed. Like, he had severe crush injuries. He was screaming and begging for someone to find his gun and shoot him, but all the survivors declined. Uh Uh-uh. That would have done it. That's, I, can you imagine getting crushed? I can't imagine getting crushed. Like, if you ever, like, hit your finger in a door, imagine that, but it doesn't stop. And then imagine that, and then it's body. all over your fucking body. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm good. Oh, would, no, would... we don't want to kill you. We have morals. Uh, uh, if you have morals, you're not going to let me suffer because I'm definitely going to fucking die. Uh, I'd just be like, Sorry. All right, I'll do it. Hand me the gun. Right. Give me the damn gun. I don't care. Yeah, no. Jesus. Anyways, so as of right now in the story, 33 people remained alive with seven passengers missing after the impact, but many had fractures, critical injuries, Crush wounds, broken bones, severe trauma from the collision of all the seats. 
Yeah, I'm actually surprised there's that many alive. Me too. Two medical students who were on the plane. Oh. Canella and Gustavo Zerbina. And also uh, another man we'll talk about in a little while. They rushed around to treat those who needed help in the best manner that they could. A man named Nando Parado, who's a big part of the story, suffered a severe skull fracture, and he remained in a coma for two to three days before awakening. Jesus. Enrique Platero ripped out a piece of his abdomen. Or, I'm sorry, whoa. He ripped a piece of metal out of his abdomen, and he took intestines with it, but he just cast it aside and immediately started helping others. What a legend. What a fucking monster. Like, Holy shit. Wow. Arturo, Arturo Nogueras' legs, his legs were both shattered, and it was pure fucking chaos. With one hour um, after the flight was presumed missing, search and rescue was notified. Four planes were deployed, and they searched until dark. They determined from radio transmissions that the aircraft had crashed in one of the most inaccessible areas of the Andes. Day two, planes from Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay were deployed again in search. The passengers formed a cross in the luggage and tried to write SOS on the white fuselage and lipstick until they realized that it would not be enough to be visible from air. Like, nice try, but you don't have enough lipstick there, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, I could have told them that. Due to severe conditions, they ex- the search and rescue team expected no survivors, and they called off the att- search attempts after eight days. Damn. Or And they searched in total for about 142 hours, or 142 and a half hours. Shit. Another f- over the next day or two, another five people perished. LaGuara from his injuries, Francisco Abal, Graziella Mariani, Felipe Marquir. Marquirian and Julio Martinez. So at total right now, 10 people are dead, 7 people are missing, and 28 remain. Okay. So the passengers are obviously in survival mode, so they're using broken seats and debris to basically fashion a crude shelter. Mm-hmm. Using also in the fuselage, within the fuselage itself. The 28 passengers were shoved into an 8 foot 2 in eight foot two inches by a nine foot ten inch space. Damn, what? that is tight. Yeah, that's tight. Very tight. But you got to do what you got to do. A man named Fido Strouch utilized sheet metal and solar energy to melt snow. Solar energy, basically the sun, to melt snow to drop into empty wine bottles for them to drink over time. They also utilized sun visors and bra straps to prevent snow blindness when they went outside. And they used wool to insulate against the cold. The seat cushions were fashioned into kind of janky snowshoes for the people who needed to go outside. Humans are crazy, man. When, when, given when we're in survival mode, we get like kind of nuts. Right. It's, it's kind of It's cool. insane. So the captain of the rugby team survived. His name was Marcelo Perez. And he had kind of taken morale leadership of the crew. Nando, per- Nando Parado, the man in the coma... He awoke after three days to find his mother dead and his sister, Susanna Parado, critically injured. Jesus. Most who had lived has never experienced snow at all, let alone the negative 22 degree Fahrenheit or negative 30 degree Celsius temperatures and high altitude. And we <sighs> all know about altitude sickness at this point. Yes, if you haven't, do. go listen to Flight 980. 
We know about altitude sickness. There is no medical supplies, no cold weather clothing, there's no equipment, and they had severely limited food. Their food supply consisted of eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, three jars of jam, a tin of almonds, a few dates, couple candies, dried plums, and several bottles of wine. <laughs> and seven bottles. Several. Like, oh, I thought you said seven. No, nah, I just said several. <laughs> <laughs> they rationed this extremely to make it last to the point where Parado had one single chocolate-covered peanut over three days. Jesus. He said that on day one, he sucked the chocolate off the peanut all day. On day two, he allowed tiny little nibbles, one every like three or four hours. And then by day three, he had nibbled it down to where he only, he had nothing left. So he had one peanut for three days. Damn. The food supplies lasted them only one week. So, there was a little bit of hope. They were able to find a small transistor radio between the seats, and Roy Harley, one of the rugby players, improvised a long antenna from electrical cable on the plane. He's kind of a tech guy, like uh, an electrical enthusiast. Hell yeah. Which is kind of cool. On October 20th, or day 8, they were all able to sit around and listen to how their search had been called off. Damn. So, another rugby player, Gustavo C- or Coco Nikolic, or Nikoli came out of the aircraft, knowing what they had just heard. He shouted, Hey boys, there's some good news. We just heard on the radio that they've called off the search. Everyone looked at him confused and silent, and then someone yelled, Why the hell is that good news? And he said, Because it means we're going to get out of here on our own. Okay. It's just a morale thing. I I would have just punched him in the face. <laughs> I'd have been like, well, fuck you, dude. I want to get out of here. They're rugby players. They're kids, so. Yeah. After a long, hard battle, uh, the sister of Nando Parada, Susanna Parada, Parado, she succumbed to her injuries and she perished. Eleven have died. Seven are missing. Twenty-seven survivors remain. See, if they didn't call it off, she probably would have survived. That's why I would have punched him in the face. <laughs> Sam. Oh my God. It's true. So after the food was long gone, the passengers actually started to consume the plane. They ate the cotton in the seats, the leather seat covers, and various fabrics all around. Jesus. This made them all very ill. No shit. And they had to stop. Yeah. The surrounding terrain, obviously, had no trees, no animals, no natural resources slash vegetation to feed or harvest nutrition. They They would soon starve to death if they did not find nutrition. The survivors, upon deep contemplation, had no choice. Upon death, they'd be forced to consume their friends. Were they making their way down this mountain at all, or are they just chilling? I would be, I'd be walking down the mountain from the get-go. You're in the middle of the Andes, and it's negative 30 degrees out. I don't think you're going anywhere. Yeah, but the further you go down, the less cold it is. You're still at 15,000 feet. I'd make a snowboard out of the plane remains. Crazy. <laughs> you'd be surprised what you'd do. Yeah. Roberta Canessa, another important part of the story, described the decision to cannibalize their family and friends. Our common goal was to survive. This is a quote. But what we lacked was food. We had long since run out of meager pickings we'd found on the plane, and there was no vegetation or animal life to be found. After just a few days, we were feeling the sensation of our own bodies consuming themselves just to remain alive. Before long, we'd become too weak to recover from starvation. 
We knew the answer, but it was too terrible to contemplate. Jesus. The bodies of our friends and teammates preserved outside in the snow and ice contained vital, life-giving protein that could help us survive. But could we do it? For a long time, we agonized. I went out in the snow and prayed to God for guidance. Without his consent, I feel like I'd be violating the memory of my friends that I would be stealing their souls. We wondered whether we were going mad to even contemplate such a thing. Had we turned into brute savages, or was this the only sane thing to do? Truly, we were pushing the limits of our fear. Knessa was the first man to consume a piece of frozen flesh. Then others soon followed. You didn't want to cook it? With what? They don't have fuel. They don't have fire starters. They don't have gas. You can make fire. Yeah, you can. That's fucked up. I don't think I would. I think I would starve to death. I don't before I eat frozen flesh. To be honest, I might. It's, I might. It's hard. That's what your friends too. It's not just some random ass dumbass on the plane. It's your buddies, your friends, your teammates. Uh, yeah. He used Shit. a piece of broken glass as a cutting tool to process the meat. They dried it in the sun to make it basically more palatable. Initially, most people could not consume the meat, or those who could could only eat the skin, muscle, and fat. Yet the supply of flesh continued to dwindle, because they only had so many people, like three people. So they started to harvest the organs, the heart brains and intestines to be consumed oh no nando parado never allowed anyone to eat or consume his sister or his mother he guarded them essentially yeah day 12 october 24th on a small expedition around the fuselage five more bodies were discovered gaston cost them (laughs) more food (laughs) (laughs) oh my god it's so fucking awful it's so it's probably true though that's probably what they were thinking they're like oh shit dinner oh god gaston costamel alejo huini guido magri joaquin ramirez and ramon ramirez 16 passengers are now confirmed dead two are missing and 27 remain the passengers continue to experience hardships from the cold desolate climate on October, um, sorry, October 29th, 17 days in, while everyone was asleep at midnight, an avalanche hit the aircraft. Immediately upon impact, it killed eight people. Enrique Platero, the man who ripped the metal out and took his intestines with it, he was still alive. He got wiped out by a fucking avalanche, of course. Poor guy. What the fuck? Liliana Methal, Gustavo Nikolic, Daniel Maspones. Juan Mendez, or Menendez, Diego Storm, Carlos Rock, and their leader, Marcelo P- Perez. Not Marcelo. I know. Liliana was kind of a hard loss because she had a huge part in the treatment and recovery of most of the survivors, and she was known kind of for her nurturing and nursing demeanor. So, as you can imagine, the survivors were extremely upended by just the deaths itself. So now, only 19 survivors remain, leaving the death toll at 24, with two missing. When the avalanche struck, though, it filled the fuselage, leaving only a small air pocket at the top of about three feet. The survivors realized they were rapidly running out of air. Parado found a metal pole and poked a hole in the roof of the fuselage for ventilation. 
On the morning of October 31st, they started the process of digging a tunnel from the cockpit to the surface. Yet when they, re when they emerged, there was a strong blizzard ongoing. This forced the passengers to continue to be trapped in the fuselage for the next three days. And don't forget that we're trapped with only about three feet of headspace and eight <sighs> corpses around them. Oh my god. After this whole thing is so fucked. So fucked. After three days, they had no choice but to start consuming the bodies of their recently dead friends, presuming their, drying, their dried rations were lost to the snow. Because this new meat wasn't dried, ugh, quote, it was soft and greasy, streaked with blood and bits of wet gristle. I gagged hard when I placed it in my mouth. No shit. Yikes. How are these people not scarred for life after this shit? I don't know. Remember the movie? Um, is it the Book of Eli? It's the Book of Eli that when you consumed human meat, it would give you the shakes. Is that true? I don't know. As a medical professional, I have no idea. Well, I don't know. Ask, mm. ask Mr. Lecter. No, you can. You don't get the shakes. Hmm. Well, there you go. <laughs> Cannibalism occurs in many species and has been part of a human culture for thousands of years. It's doable. Cannibalism involves eating parts of one enemies to take on their strength. So, a lot of Viking shit. I don't... Yeah. Hoorah. No, thank you. So, at this point... <laughs> side After that side note, the survivors... <laughs> so, we can eat human meat. Ugh. <laughs> so, at this point, these survivors were obviously getting extremely desperate. They need to start figuring out a plan to explore the surrounding areas for help. Because the pilot, before they crashed, had announced that they were coming upon Curacao, they believed to only be a few kilometers west of Chile. Unfortunately, this was not the case. The pilot only flew three out of the 11 minutes before turning north, putting the wreckage over 55 miles east, deep into the Andes. Right. The snow that buried the fuselage was gradually melting due to the warmer days of summer coming. Because remember, they're flipped seasons down there. Right. If oh, you're yeah, in, so if you're in North America, into, yeah. our October to basically March is our winter. So down there, it's their summer. Some of the strongest survivors tried to make small treks, but they either experienced severe fatigue, altitude sickness, snow blindness, dehydration, or hypothermia from the cold. Any trek had been forced to turn around at this point. They needed to create an expedition of the strongest to help, to basically reach help. Robert, Roberto Canessa, Nando Parado, Numa Turcati, Antonio Vizintin were all getting prepped to make the trip. They did not have to do their daily chores and instead spent time fashioning the warmest clothes and building their strength. After they put this team together... They waited seven more days to get to the warmest temperatures possible before departing. The initial hope was again to go west and only travel a few kilometers, but a huge mountain lay west of the crash site. So instead, they started east down into a valley in hopes that the valley would cut west and they could decrease elevation and get to Chile. Upon traveling east, they were able to find the broken section of the tail that included the galley. They scavenged a box of chocolates, three meat patties, a, a bottle of rum, cigarettes, extra clothes, comic books, and some medicine. <laughs> they also discovered a two-way radio. Oh, nice. They camped in the tail for the night, hoping that are hopeful by their recent supply discovery. discovery. 
Listen, I'm not a smoker, but I bet those cigarettes would taste good about right there. You know, I was just thinking that. I'm like, I've never had any desire to smoke, but I think if I were in that situation, I'd I be might. like, fuck yeah. Like, fuck it. Give it. Anything at this point. Anything. The following day, they trekked and then spent their first night outside in the elements. Almost all of them perished immediately. Jesus. They realized they could not spend outside for ex- for exposed per- or prolonged periods of time exposed to the elements and therefore decided to return back to the tail. Jesus. And upon returning, they actually realized that inside the tail was the aircraft batteries. And they're like, oh shit. So they attempted to remove these, carry them back to the fuselage, and instead make an SOS call to Santiago. But the batteries proved to be too heavy at 53 pounds apiece. So instead, they returned to the fuselage to disconnect the radio and bring it, bring the radio to the batteries itself. Hmm. The man who set up the initial radio, Roy Harley, the tech guy, was recruited for his electronic skills. Mm-hmm. Upon the trip down, they realized they needed a radio with a hundred, uh, yep, 115 volt AC battery. What they discovered in the tail was 24 volts DC. So eventually, the trip was going to be futile, anyways. Um, so when they got to the tail, they realized that. Yeah. So they decided after that, like, well, this is fucked. So we have to head back to the fuselage. Upon the return trip, they hit a blizzard. Harley. <laughs> <laughs> this poor guy he's like is this poor cute little tech guy and he's like yeah i'm not fucking going through a blizzard like no way <laughs> um so roy harley <laughs> he just uh he tried to lay down essentially and die and Perado wouldn't let him <laughs> oh uh, same though so he ended up just he partially dragged him and then he made him stand up and keep walking jesus <laughs> just laying there this poor little guy him. he's like no just let me die and he's just like let me fucking die no damn right so days 34 through 37 arturo noguera perished three days later rafael um echavarin died and they both died from gangrene due to their severely infected wounds. Oh, right, right. So after day 37, 26 people have perished, two were still missing, and 17 remain. Jeez. As if the pressure wasn't on before that, it was definitely on now. Upon listening, they can still listen to the radio, fashioned, and the fuselage. They heard the search for them actually had resumed. It was extremely apparent that the only way out was to climb the massive mountain pass to the west. The other problem was making it so they could survive the nights exposed to the elements. They were able to fashion a large sleeping bag for three people from insulation from the rear of the fuselage, copper wire, and waterproof uh, fabric from the AC unit. It was a massive group group effort to create the patches and then sew them all together for these three guys. Shit. By the end of the creation of the sleeping bag on day 60, Numa Turkati perished from starvation. Damn. He had continued to reject human flesh for consumption, coupled with the exertion from the sleeping bag project, his body just failed. He weighed 55 pounds. That's just skin and bone. Nothing. Damn. 27 have now died, 2 are still missing, 16 remain. So the three guys that were going to do this track was Canessa, Parado, and Vizintin. They were um, they were going to make the climb. 
Without any mountaineering gear, they started to climb the 15,320-foot peak. Jesus. Due to the further belief that they were close to the western Andes, they brought only a three-day supply of meat. Fuck. Parado wore three pairs of jeans, three sweaters over a polo shirt with four pairs of socks wrapped in shopping bags. (laughs) None of them had backpacks, obviously. They had no compass, no map, only a broken altimeter scavenged from the nose. The altimeter altimeter said they were only at 7,000 feet. But in reality, there were almost 12,000. So it was, what was the point at that, you know? Yeah. They believed that they could reach the peak in one day, but essentially due to the hip deep snow, the oxygen poor air and harsh conditions, it made it really fucking hard. Yeah. Again, no fucking gear. So upon the first day after leaving, they discovered the dead body of Daniel Shaw, one of the uh, seven people ejected from oh, the rear of the fuselage. I was say, well, did he leave or? No, he was ejected to the mountainside. Jesus. The following day, Carlos Valletta's body was discovered as well on the mountainside. So these two were up high. Damn. So at this point, 29 victims have perished and 16 remain, and there's no more unaccounted bodies. So Parado took the lead for most of the trek, and they were constantly arguing about which route to take. Canessa believed that he saw a road to the east and begged Parado to turn and go that way, but he refused. They continued going straight up the center of the mountain to the peak. All the while this was happening, all the remaining survivors were watching them climb up this, Mm -hmm. essentially, um, up the side of the mountain. Even on day one, they had trouble finding a place for the sleeping bag that was not constantly in the elements. On day three, they had reached a wall of ice. We're going to keep that. Okay. I, t- I too. On day three, they had reached a wall of ice more than 100 meters or 300 feet tall. Canessa remained at the bottom where, at where they set up camp the night before, while Parado and Vizentin used a stick to carve out footholds to climb it. When they reached the top, solely expecting to see the border of Chile, they instead saw miles of mountain ranges and snowy terrain around them. That must be so demoralizing. That, oh. Like, oh, we're in the middle of nowhere. Awesome. At the top, Parado said, Roberto, can you imagine how beautiful this would be if we were not dead men? (laughs) Yep. Literally. The most logical option was the return, or to return to the fuselage for more supplies, then continue the trek over the peak. They slept the night. They went, sorry. So they went back down the ice climb. Back to their original yeah. campsite. And then they slept the night, and on day four, Vizentin used a piece of metal, and he sled his way to the fuselage. It only took him one hour to go back to where they started. Hmm. Sliding. That sucks. That is slow, trudging, trekking. Awful shit. Vizentin returned with supplies to where their camp was, and then Canessa and Parado decided to continue on. Vizentin returned back to the fuselage. When Canessa reached the top of the glacier and saw nothing but snow-capped mountains for miles, he said, We're dead. Parado, though, he spotted two peaks to the west that were not fully covered in snow, and he believed that they should aim towards there because that could be the edge of the mountain range, you know, on one of the sides of it. I suppose. Right. It's a long shot. It's a long shot, but it could be. 
They were facing a valley that wound its way towards these peaks, and this, this is the route they decided to take. The road that Canessa spotted to the east was later realized that this was actually the fastest route to getting rescued. Fuck. <laughs> the biggest I told you so on planet Earth. Right. They didn't realize until way later, but still, like, fuck. Damn. So, Parado said before they started their descent over the far side of the mountain, we may be walking to our deaths, but I'd rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. Same. Canessa agreed. You and I are friends, Nando. We have been through so much. Now let's go die together. <laughs> Upon hiking for several more days, they reached the valley that Parado wanted to trek. They discovered a river, the source of the Rio San Jose. They followed this river for days. Upon this river, they started to notice signs of deep, primitive camping along the river's edge. And finally, on day nine, they saw cows. Kill the cows. Fuck them up. Right. Can you imagine? <laughs> I'd literally be like, is that a fucking cow? I would have. like, go tackle it. <laughs> right. Go eat some fucking raw cow meat. Better than a human. Anything. Ugh. At this point, Canessa seemed unable to continue on. Granted, this river was extremely wide and had very heavy, fast flows of water, like white rapids. Yeah. When they're gathering food, uh, food. <laughs> yeah, the joke's on you. When they're <laughs> gathering wood for a fire that night, they spotted three men on horseback across the river. They were screaming at them, and eventually one of them spotted them. Fuck yeah. The man on horseback, um, they basically, well, so they tied a note to a, a rock and hummed it at them across the river. Because they can't cross the river because it's too deep, too fast. Yeah. They threw it across. They wrote a message to them, the three guys on horseback. They can't yell? I'm assuming they can't hear because it's too fast. And oh, yeah. Okay. So it's like. It's <sighs> drowning. Yeah. It's drowning the sound. Gotcha. Okay. They threw it across the river. So. Parado ended up writing to them, I come from a plane that fell in the mountains. I'm a Uruguayan. We have been walking for 10 days. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plane, there are still 14 injured people. We have to get out from here quickly and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? The man who... In so they threw it back. Okay. What? Uh, just fun it's just funny because I would have wrote... I just would have wrote, help us. Right. None of the other stuff. I would have been like, help us, we're the Andes crash survivors. We're Flight 571 yeah, survivors. Help me, I'm dying. Yeah. <laughs> I've eaten human. Right. Please send help. Right. Damn. <laughs> the man who intercepted the letter was a muleteer named Sergio Catalan. He said that he would, they sent the thing back. They said they would re return tomorrow and gave him a thumbs up. Okay. I'm assuming to go get supplies. I he mean, discussed yeah. with the other men and remembered the renewed, um, the recently, or well, I guess the renewed search party from the crash because they turned it back on. Essentially, they got the search and rescue back up and operating. Mm -hmm. He heard about it for the Andes Mountain crash. So they also tossed them bread from their supplies across the river and they started to ride for help. He rode for 10 hours straight. When he was riding, he passed another muleteer in passage and asked him to trek to the men and bring them to Los M Martinez. Los Martinez. He rode straight to a police junction and they relayed the news to the army command in San Fernando, Chile. 
Fernando or San Fernando then contacted San Diego or Sa- Santiago. On day 70, Parado and Canessa were brought on horseback to Los Martinez and were provided food and a bed. They had hiked 24 miles over 10 days through deep snow and uh, significant elevation changes. Jesus. Since the crash, Canessa had lost over half of his body weight, an astonishing 97 pounds. Oh, so he's a big boy. He's 200 pounds. He's probably, he could be tall. 200 pounds for oh, a I tall. Guess, yeah. Yeah. You, because you weigh a pound. Normal people weigh like 180 to 200, 220. I guess, I guess. At six feet, you know. I'd it's... be dead in like seven days in that crash. Oh, y- yeah. Your peanut ain't going far My for peanut. You. <laughs> My peanut ass. My pe- your peanut ain't going. Um, once news got out that there were survivors after 72 days of a plane crash, it drew international attention. Yeah. Reporters were flooding in to get the survivor's story before they were even fully rescued. Chilean Air Force provided three Bell UH-1 helicopters to assist. Parado volunteered to lead the helicopters to the crash site. Two helicopters took off to the survivors, leaving one to spare just in case for accident. Smart. Yep. Flying over the terrain to the survivors was a feat itself, and the pilots were shocked at what Parado and Canessa had tracked. Upon arrival, due to the steep terrain, the pilots could only touch down one skid. And the skids are the two long parts that run along the base, like what it, a helicopter lands on. So mm. it's like at a sideways angle. Yeah. From the significant altitude and the weight limits, only six survivors were permitted to leave. Out of how many are there still? Um, they had taken 14. Four members of search and rescue stayed with the eight remaining survivors overnight. Daniel Fernandez, Jose Luis Enciarte, in, in, in I don't know, Alvaro Mangino, Carlos Rodriguez, Adolfo Strouch, and Eduardo Strouch were rescued on day one. Fri- on day one, which was Friday, December 22nd. At daybreak on December 23rd, 72 days after the crash, the helicopter returned for the eight remaining survivors. Jose Algorta... Alfredo Delgado, Roberto, Roberto Francois. Ooh, you almost rolled your R there. Roberto, Roberto Francois, <laughs> Roy Harley, Javier Mitho, <laughs> Ramon Sabella, Antonio Vizentin, and Gustavo Zerbino were finally returned to civilization. Damn. Only five of the rugby of the nineteen rugby players survived. They were all evaluated at a hospital in Santiago and treated for many conditions, including altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, scurvy, which if you don't know, vitamin C deficiency, mm-hmm. and malnutrition. Under normal circumstances, the bodies that were left behind would be retrieved for burial. Mm. Due to the harsh climate, the Chilean rescuers left them until the government made a final decision on what to do. When interviewed initially, the survivors wanted to keep their cannibalism a secret and right. discuss it in private with their families. Say that. Yeah, like, but how did you survive? Uh, what did you eat? Uh... Rumors immediately started to circulate that they killed some of their own for food. And on December twenty third, reports of cannibalisms were already published published worldwide. Bef- the day of the final rescue, they're already figuring out that they had cannibalized each other. I mean. 
gotta do what you gotta do but they didn't kill each other for it they did not so that was part of the forgiveness so we talk about that a little bit at the end by december 26th a leaked photo taken by the indian relief corps of a half-eaten human leg was printed on the front page of two chilean newspapers oh my god if they haven't okay so they have experienced the most physical trauma i've ever heard and now they're experiencing like social shame shame like yep what the fuck these poor people luckily there wasn't social media back then it's the 70s so thank god so on the newspaper they claimed they survived by cannibalism after all the media attention the survivors had to finally hold a press conference on december 28th to recount the events of the 72 days Mm -hmm. alfredo delgado spoke for them all he compared those (laughs) he compared their actions to those of jesus christ at the last supper (laughs) okay yeah, essentially, you got to do what you got to do with respect. <laughs> there was initial backlash against them, but after hearing the pact that the bodies were willingly sacrificed for consumption if they died, it was diminished. A priest even came to them and told them that they were not damned for their actions due to the extreme nature of their situation. January 18, 1973, almost a year later, a priest and 12 men were transported to the crash site to bury the bodies. While 13 bodies remained intact and untouched, preserved essentially from the cold, 15 were down to skeletal remains. They moved the bodies a quarter to, well, about a quarter to half a mile away from the fuselage and away from an avalanche zone to bury them. They placed a simple stone altar with an orange iron cross. Upon it, they mounted a plaque that said, and, and this is the English translation, I'm sure it sounds better in, in the language that it was made, um, the world to its Uruguayan brothers, close, oh God, to you. They then burned the fuselage remains to the best of their ability. Though, Eduardo Strouch visited the crash site in 1995, stated the bottom part of the fuselage still remained. One of the survivor's parents tried to get his son's remains to bury them at home, but he was denied by the government. He then hired a private expedition crew to gather his son's remains anyways. <laughs> so the original priest that buried them, um, he had marked the bags of each victim on a prearranged agreement. So when the father returned back to find his, well, when the father returned back to with his son's remains, he was actually arrested for grave robbing. Shit. After a lot of legal battle, he was eventually able to obtain legal permission to bury his son. There's many documentaries, TV show episodes, books, and even animated shows such as Rick and Morty and Rocco's Modern Life who depict or nod at these events. Damn. Even in Stephen King's book, The Shining, he mentions the plane crash at an isolated hotel saying that they were starving and perhaps dining on each other the ways that those rugby players had. Oh, shit. In the end, the flight had crashed only 13 miles from a formal hotel resort in Hot Springs, Terma El Sosniato, which could have provided them shelter. I just wouldn't even want to know that fact. I would not want to know, but I'm sure they all did. Um, Out of all the survivors left, only one has now perished from today. The rest are alive. I don't know how they're alive, like, mentally. I don't know. Imagine being like, yeah, I survived a plane crash, ate my friend, survived like, what, 70 days or some shit? Or not 70, yeah, 70 days. 72. Somewhere, well, 
for uh, Canessa and Parado were only out there 70 days, but they made the trek and they had two days to rest before going to get the, or a day to rest before go getting, leading them to the other people. So you got me a stroke. Yeah. Go, ga 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 ga. That fucking TikTok got me messed up. So. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was Flight 571. A fucking crazy, crazy trip of a story. That is wild. I can't even believe like anybody would even survive from the initial crash. That Nonetheless, was... like all that shit on top of it. Again, all can you imagine every single seat was ripped from its bolts and ejected to the front of the plane? I don't know how you would live through that. You, yeah. you all end up in a pile because you probably have your seatbelts on. Yeah. I don't know. And they didn't have that much space in there. Eight by ten feet. That's not a lot of space. For, t- for ten, twenty people. Yeah, the whole thing's just messed up. That's the, probably how they kept warm, though. They're all on top of each other. Yeah, if it was any bigger, it might be too cold. Yeah. Shit. Wild. Crazy. Wildin. We're wildin' out here. We're wildin'. It's <laughs> not what they were saying. <laughs> well, we hope you keep listening. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And you can always follow us on Instagram at... Starman's Podcast at gmail.com. Wait. Well, no, okay. that's our email. Screw that up again. You did. That's okay. We we will one day we'll learn from our mistakes. So that's our email. So if you want to, you can follow us at Starman's Podcast. Yeah. On Instagram or TikTok Starman's Podcast. We're on TikTok. We on the TikTok tickety tock <laughs> all right next episode i'm so gonna I'm, be talking about on the next episode of starments we're gonna be going back in time and forwards in time and talking about not time and in no time time dilation time dilation the warping of time i am so fucking pumped you have no idea how long I've been asking Anthony to talk about this. We'll be shit. talking about wormholes. Cool. Time travel. Yes. Black holes. Nope. Yep. We already did that. Well, t- black hole black holes interaction on time. Okay, yep. Uh and I'll save the rest as a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, guys. Yeah. Goodbye. What?